Hey everyone, welcome in to another daily editorial here on the KE Report. Corey and Chad here chatting with Matt Battiali, editor of the New Energy Investor, which is published under the Mangrove Investor. I will post a link to Mangrove Investor website below this interview. Now, Matt, we're going to circle around to some news that more just came out of the resource space. It was the rebalancing of SILJ. And this brings up a bigger topic here of ETFs focused on junior stocks. Now, we can also define what junior stocks are because, quite frankly, in the resource sector, junior stocks mean very, very low market caps in the sometimes single-digit million-dollar range, while as other sectors, their junior stocks mean more in the hundreds of millions, if not close to a billion That rebalancing in SILJ, I think, woke a lot of people up to say, look, these ETFs that are supposed to be focused on juniors are not truly focused on juniors, and they're not even truly focused on the individual sector, silver, for SILJ, because they have so many other stocks. Matt, how do you look at these junior ETFs, mostly in the resource sector, focused on junior companies that well, they should be focused on them, but quite frankly, these junior companies are just too small. Yeah, that's I, I I really am not a fan of juniors in ETFs and funds because they're illiquid. It's great when when you're in the the bull market, you know, but usually these things don't create get created until the bull market is almost done. And then the downside is terrible. I mean, it's it's brutal. So, when you have a fund that needs to get a meaningful position in a junior, you know, we can use a uh, Kootenai silver or Kootenai silver as an example. SILJ held, I think 900,000 shares of that stock. And uh, it only really traded a hundred thousand shares in any given day prior to that sell-off. And so when the, when the fund needed to liquidate, they just, they, they clobbered that stock. I think it went down 25% a single day just because the fund needed to get out of the position and they didn't do it in a way that, that um, eased out. They just dumped it. Right. And so for these juniors, like a 25% decline in your share price as a junior is brutal for a company that has to raise money. And especially in a market like we have right now where nobody's buying, I mean, you couldn't mop up that much stock. That's why the thing fell 25%. So yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan and I also think there's a lot of deceit that goes on when you're building an ETF. I, I encourage investors or speculators to to dig into the holdings. Don't just look at the top 10 holdings. Look at the whole list because half the time, like SILJ, they had Philo Mining, which is a copper play in South America, part of the Lundin Group. Love the company, but why were they in a Silver Juniors portfolio? Yeah, Matt, you raised such a great point there on knowing the holdings inside of the ETF if you're going to invest in an ETF or look at the holdings inside of an ETF as investment ideas to research on your own. And we've always said build your own ETF. But I would like to ask you about how you approach different uh, subsectors within the mining stocks, because if you think about something like holding a royalty company for a longer period of time in an ETF, that actually makes sense. It's not a junior, but it actually makes sense because a royalty company is a slow, gradual creep higher. Producers have quarterly returns every quarter, so they're consistent. But if you build an ETF that has true juniors in it, developers and explorers, 
those are catalyst hunters. They're looking for news. They're looking for drill results, a resource upgrade, an economic study. And so they may go from feast to famine to back to feast, back to famine. Isn't it different to invest in explorers and developers than it is in something like a producer or a royalty company? Absolutely. I, I think with uh, royalty companies and, and producers, like you said, you have tangible metrics. You can buy them based on you know expected returns, revenue, um, profit margin. But yeah, I mean, if you're buying exploration companies, you're catalyst driven, like you said. How do you how do you decide when to put one of these things in your ETF? Uh, because if you buy it when there's a lot of hype, like you said, the feast is great. But if you buy it at the top of the feast, you know what comes next. That's the famine while you wait for the next set of drill results. And so, you know, when you look at these discoveries, they all look like stair steps. You know, that you have that that pivot up, and then they're they're overpriced, and the people that got in early sell, and so it comes way back down again. I mean, it's it would be brutal to try and manage a fund like that, particularly in the you know deciding how and when to add a new a new uh, explorer to your to your fund and, and then when to sell it you know it's it's really it would it's really complicated and way different than you would do with something like a, a producer which has fundamentals now matt let's look at when these etfs were created because now <laughs> we're in a world where there are etfs it seems like for almost everything but the thing is etfs are great in a bull market in a bear market though they are very tough to play and you look at GDX, GDXJ, SIL, they were all created in the last, I would consider, the last major, major bull run higher, which was, let's say, right around 2010, give or take a year or two on the other side. Ever since then, I think it has gotten harder to manage these ETFs because it's broadly been a bear market for these stocks. So is the problem that these ETFs, whether we want, whether they're in juniors or not, is that it's been a bear market? Yeah, I, I I think that's fair. I mean, any basket of commodity stocks is going to have that sine wave looking stock chart because that's just the nature of of commodities. We're very cyclical. Gold is cyclical. Oil is cyclical. Base metals are cyclical. And so, yes, when you're when you're getting when you when you were developing interest in gold stocks, I mean, GDX launched mid two thousand six. You know, it 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 peaked. You would you could guess exactly when it peaked, right? The top of the gold market, you know, late 2011, uh, was the best that ETF ever did, and then it absolutely cratered going into 2016. It's had a bit of a it's had a bit of a rebound since 2016 into 2020 into 2020, and then it's come off since then. That's the nature of the commodities that that you're buying, right? You're you're the price of gold. And I hate to break this to your listeners. The price of gold will not go up to infinity. It could go up a lot more than it is now, but it's not going up forever. And and it will come back down. Oil prices are the same. I remember in, in uh, 2008, people were calling for $250, $300 barrel gold, oil. And it was impossible because oil is a consumed product. And, and uh, people just conserved. And lo and behold, the, the price of oil came down again. So... Yeah, I think that there's a a fundamental problem with commodities in that 
when everybody gets excited enough that they start launching these ETFs, it's late in the cycle. And, you know, while GDX didn't go away, you know, the rebalancing of SILJ happened at what I would consider close to the bottom in the silver market. I mean, SILJ, this is a rough time to be in silver juniors. <laughs> Boy, Matt, is it ever a rough time to be in silver juniors? They're maybe the most beat up section of the precious metal sector. But it also brings up this discussion, how many positions should you hold in your basket if you build your own ETF. And when you look at some of these things, you know, it's good to be diversified, but GDX has 57 stocks. GDXJ has 97 stocks. SILJ, I think, had 72. Most people would say that's a little bit hefty of a position to all have in one sector. I mean, I actually have a lot of stocks. I have about 50 plus in my portfolio, but that's balanced against oil and gas and uranium and copper and gold and silver. And, you know, it's a, it's a mix. These are ETFs that have like GDXJ, almost 100 stocks in just one sector. Is that diversification also a drag on performance? Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I, I think that if you have, if you've got 70 some odd junior stocks, I question what your, who your analyst is and what your analyst is doing. They were following a an index, right? And again, having been in this sector for almost 20 years, I have... I have things that I like to do to evaluate companies, but there are what a couple thousand of these juniors listed on the TSX V alone. And so you, you've got to have someone who is dedicated, has a set of, of uh, priorities about what they want, whether it's, do you want concentration in a, uh, a geographic region, a concentration in a deposit style, or do you just want to go scattershot? I mean, so how many you put into your portfolio really depends on what you're looking for. I mean, do you have a, do you only want projects that have a certain grade that there are, I would approach it very systematically. And then some other people would approach it very differently, which is, you know, they're, they're going to buy after a discovery hole. So, you know, you, you only pick up companies that have already put a drill hole in the ground and been rewarded, right? I have a friend that built, <laughs> he built his portfolio. And as you said, there can be ETFs, any number of reasons to build an ETF. But I've a good friend of mine made a lot of money only buying juniors that newsletter writers sold. So when newsletter writers threw in the towel, he went out and loaded up on them. That was his methodology. So, you know. You can have lots of different ways to do it. Well, as much as we want to complain that these junior ETFs don't include the true juniors within the sector, I think we do need to look at it from the U.S. standpoint because these are U.S. trading vehicles. And yes, they buy stocks off of the venture exchange in Canada. But overall, these companies, if they trade in the U.S., the juniors at least, are on OTC exchanges. So do we really need ETFs or are there really any other ETFs that track OTC listed companies in the US? No. Short answer, no. I you know, I, I don't I, I you can you can argue that that if the ducks are quacking feed them, you know, so if there are people out there clamoring for this, maybe you should be able to make a, a ETF out of over the counter stocks. But effectively, you know, I agree. I think the TSX Venture, there's no real equivalent in the States except for the OTC. It's a little more Wild West, so there is more risk. When you package 
that risk into an ETF, you're implying to the consumer of that ETF that you've de-risked it to some extent. And I would argue that you haven't. You've just packaged systemic risk, right? So you you packaged a bunch of uh, of high risk mortgages <laughs> into a into a bundle and then uh, sold them as a uh, high high you know high quality stuff. That's not that's not at all the case. And we know that because when these markets go down, those juniors go down a lot, right? You can just go back and look at um, what's going on recently in the lithium space. There's a standard lithium was a bell of the ball. You know, these guys um, were a $9 stock and now they're, what, a dollar and change? So when they go, when they start to decline, they really, really go. Imagine having a basket of 70 standard lithiums. You would demolish all of them as people started asking for redemptions. When people want their money back from the ETF, you've got to sell whatever you can sell, whatever, you know, whatever's got a bid. And so that punishes all those stocks. So no, I just, uh, I, I'm not a fan. I, I, like I said, if I want a basket of these things, I go in with a, with a kind of a more specific premise if I just want exposure to the sector, then I'm going to buy the mid-tiers or the majors, right? And just get exposure to the sector and not, you know, not get exposure to the discoveries. I did hear an interesting thesis, which is these these actually, these, uh, these ETFs offer a different option, which is buy the individual company that you like and short the index as your model. Uh, that gives you um, that gives you a different investment thesis, a different investment style. Man, I think that's a great point because there are inverse ETFs that allow you to, in a sense, short a sector without using options because they're handling that for you. And so it does give you the ability to go long your own basket and go short the ETF. That's another hedging strategy you could use. One more question, though, and that is just the value of being your own stock picker versus a passive investor, you know, the benefits of being a stock picker is that you also get the dividends as they come up on some of those bigger cap stocks. You get spin out companies if they happen. And so that's another advantage of managing your own portfolio. But it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of specialized knowledge. A lot of the reason investors buy ETFs is so they don't have to think. So they don't have to build their own basket so they can just plop it in. And that's not just the gold and silver space. That's in copper. That's in oil. That, Like you say, that's in lithium. But that's also in cannabis stocks and cryptos and all kinds of different things. So isn't it also a function of the type of investors ETFs attract, which is passive investors? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that that's an important distinction. The problem is when you have um, an ETF that's created for a more higher risk group of individuals that want that risk and don't understand that an ETF magnifies that risk instead of reducing it. But yeah, from from a stock picking versus basket portfolio idea, if you are, you have to understand the kind of investor you are and understand your risk tolerances. So you really, if you're, if you're someone who doesn't really want to put in the time and just wants to buy a basket, exploration stage companies probably aren't where you need to be. And if you do want to invest in exploration stage companies, you need to find either a broker that you like uh, or that you trust or 
a newsletter writer that you trust or someone to do the research for you. Because the, the fact of the matter is that there's an enormous amount of things that can go wrong with juniors. And it, it's more than just the rocks. It really comes down to the people. And so if you if you really don't know who you're investing in, you can lose a lot of money. And so a passive investor, this is not the space for a passive investor. There's all sorts of analogies that I that have been just jumping in my head, but I'm just going to leave it with that, I think. That exploration stage companies are for a specific group of people in there. I wouldn't say they're for everybody. So Matt, if you're doing research, due diligence in a company, and you see this junior included in an ETF, how do you view that now? Yeah, it, you know, it depends. I'm going to spend some time looking at the ETF and see how what, how large of a position they hold. But I got to tell you that that SILJ rebalancing opened my eyes because they basically selected winners and losers in that rebalancing. And, you know, so if, you know, this is actually a really good point because it almost behaves like a warrant overhang, you know, where you have, if you have a company that you like, but they have 10% of their issue is out as warrants and the warrant price is below where it's currently trading, that's a problem. Or if it's right at where they're currently trading, you, you know, you, you don't want to buy that stock. You can love the project and love the people. And that warrant overhang is, is intimidating. If you have a stock, we'll go back to Kootenai. If you have a stock that trades 100,000 shares a day, and you have an uh, an ETF that's got almost a million shares of that, that's a problem. And that's a problem for both the ETF and for the issuer because when that ETF has to, to get out and they don't announce that they're selling, so there is no opportunity for the company to find a, a major shareholder to, to bring in to, to, that'll buy up those shares when they go on the market, that's a problem. So yeah, I, I'm definitely adding that to my list of my list of risks that I need to to look out for is uh having a fund that's deep into the company is not always a benefit. In all fairness, the, some of them did get rebalanced higher though, right? So it did help out some companies, it, but it, it did. There were some winners. <laughs> it did. And it definitely hurt a lot of other ones. But I think just overall it's tough to run a junior ETF, especially in a sector where the junior companies are so small and some that trade just such low volumes. I think that's also just kind of sector specific in that sense. But boy, oh boy, this SILJ rebalance really, I think, woke up a few people to sometimes the risks that are associated with also being in these ETFs and just how really not that focused these ETFs are. Matt, thank you, as always, for your time. We'll chat again in another couple of weeks. I hope you have a great rest of your week.